Welcome to December's podcast. It's Christmas soon! This month we've got a bit of a shorter episode than normal, but still some great stuff. A song, an extract from a book, give it a chance, a little review of the Snowflake Switch On, some information about our Christmas services, and some general notices. It's great to have you. Joy will be back in the new year, and we can restart the theology slot of the podcast. I know you've missed it. In the meantime, continue to pray for her and the family as she prepares to come back to lead us. On the 1st of December, we turned on the giant snowflakes on the church building. We had food, music, craft stores, nativity characters, and loads of fun, all in aid of the Children's Hospital charity, and to welcome people to the church. I gave a bit of an update to people at church about how it went. Um, hopefully there's some photos that you're going to be able to see just a Friday night, because uh, it was really great. Um, there was loads of people came. Um, Maybe we'll go through, so we were setting up, there's some people standing on there, which maybe you need special safety certificates, I don't know, Katie's maybe nervous, people are going to try it. Um, and we had the, the market on that side, if you weren't here, and people in here just having a, a drink and listening to the music and some craft stuff over there. Um, keep going. Th- there was a few um, kind of people who came, the New Barrack Tavern had some drinks on the car park there, and they said that it was really great, um, and they enjoyed coming. They were, even though they were so freezing, they really enjoyed it. Ken was a superstar all, um, all day helping and all evening clearing up and then dressing like a king, which was great as well. And it was wonderful to see the church so full of people. Um, and then um, we had some food and drink outside, and the market was there, and the Steel City Choristers were the choir that came, and the brass band came as well, and they were great. And everyone really enjoyed that Christmas spirit. Molly's, which is just up in Hillsborough, um, really liked it. Um, they had a great time. They met some famous people that they enjoyed, and um, um, that was great. This was John Richardson turning on the lights, which was really fun. Um, and uh, Santa in the background made a special guest appearance as well. Um, and uh, we had a great time. There he is. See ya. Lovely. Um, so I um, wanted to let you know what happened, that it was great. It was really amazing to see the church full of people and loads of people that we don't often see here as well. And it raised loads of money for the um, Snowflake, uh, for the Children's Hospital Appeal, which is brilliant. Um, and the church looks wonderful for all of December, doesn't it? Which is nice as well. Um, a special thank you to um, Tony and Clint, who helped me a lot with organizing it beforehand. And on the day, to, um, there was loads of people who did help, but, um, and I've got a card for them, but... Uh, without mentioning all their names. I think Gordon and Ken were here from the beginning till the end. And Barbara was amazing all day, giving us cups of tea and did amazing things with the kids' crafts. A lot more than I expected of her as well. So she's not here to thank in person, but thank you to her. So yeah, it was really great and we had a good time. And um, same again next year, I think. So there you go, thank you. For our notices this month, we've. Just got a few key Christmas dates to share with you. On the 17th of December at 7 o'clock, we've got our traditional carol service with the Steel City Choristers and the Uterbridge Brass Band. It's going to be amazing. You can stay around afterwards for some alcohol-free mulled wine and mince pies. On the 24th of December, we've got our first ever St. John's Crib service. It's at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Christmas Eve, and it's going to be a great time to come along 
If you're a child or an adult who likes dressing up, bring your costumes and we'll have a kind of reenactment of the nativity. It's going to be wonderful. On the 24th of December, we've also got our midnight communion service starting at 11.30 p.m. And just a few hours after that, our Christmas Day celebration at 10 a.m. on Christmas Day. It would be great to have you there for some Christmas fun. Here is a song led by Gail a few weeks ago at church. As I always say, it's better in person than in the recording. It is something to do with the sound mixing, but it's still a great song and I hope it helps you in worship and prayer.
Finally, as a bit of a change this month, I'm going to read a bit of a book to you. This is a first part of a book called Seeking the God Beyond by J.P. Williams, published by SCM Press. It's about something called apophatic spirituality. There's a good chance you've never heard of this, but keep an open mind and see what you think. Seeking the God Beyond a Beginner's Guide to Christian Apophatic Spirituality by J.P. Williams Introduction Speak of me as I am There are various names for the spiritual path we're about to explore. It is sometimes known by a Latin name, the Via Negativa, or Negative Way. That can be misleading, as I'll explain below. Sometimes it might be what people mean by mystic spirituality or contemplative spirituality. But those can be very broad categories indeed, and within them there are even particular brands of spirituality associated with specific teachers or schools of thought, such as the various contemporary forms of mindfulness. 
In some texts and contexts, it might be named simply prayer or pure prayer. Though unless you are only sanitised to what is meant, this doesn't help. Even though I'll try to avoid jargon as much as possible in what follows, I'm going to use the Greek word for this type of spirituality because I can't find a better one. None of the possible English translations quite capture it. So welcome to this introduction to apophatic spirituality in the Christian tradition. If you've already made your acquaintance of this tradition and are reading this book to find out a little bit more, you may want to skip past the explanation that follows and jump straight to part one. The plot of Shakespeare's Othello turns on a profound point about human psychology. The play opens on the middle of a conversation. Two gentlemen are discussing an unnamed hymn. The title of the play is our only clue at first to who he might be. We hear that he is proud and bombastic, self-centred and more with thick lips. We are told that he has stolen and married a young woman. They are uncouth comments about sexuality and is an old black ram, vivacious. But also that he is a military leader, deemed indispensable. We don't meet the place hero, the Moor, until scene two. He is not called by his name, Othello, until scene three. Having heard all we have about him, it's quite a shock to hear him speak with restraint, delicacy, and some of the play's most poetic lines. Some of the earlier information about him was indeed true. He is a mature man of middle-aged, Moorish, a warrior, and recently married. But the reality of his character, when we see him for ourselves, is poles apart from the reputation so busily being established in scene one. It is clear that the reports given out about Othello tell us a great deal more about prejudice, stereotyping and the character of the speakers than they do about the supposed subject. The tragedy that follows spins with ghastly inevitability out of this basic theme. How easily believe what we're told, how often we allow it to bind us up to the reality under our noses. How we smash up love and life because we can't shake off the reports other people feed to us and trust instead to experience and to our own heart's intuition. Othello's heartfelt plea before taking his own life is simple, dignified. Speak of me as I am. This is a good starting point for our explanation of apophatic theology. Like the characters in Othello, we tend to encounter God's reputation before we knowingly encounter God. We gather all sorts of bits of information about God, some of it good and useful, some of wildly off-centre and frankly harmful to us and others. Whatever it is we've learned, we need to be sure that when the divine hero strides onto our personal or ecclesial stage, we'll be able to hold all lightly enough that it won't distort our encounter, won't bind us to any of it, won't influence us to misinterpret it. Hold it lightly enough that we can see what needs to be discarded as rank untruth, what tells us more about prejudice, stereotype and the character of the speakers than it does about God. The analogy only goes so far, of course, but anything more than a cursory glance at the history of the Christian church will force us to admit there is much more to make us cry out with the play's closing lines that there's a tragic loading in our talk of God, more fell than anguish, hunger or the sea. If we speak of God as he is, then we need to check what we say as often as possible against the touchstone of our experience of living towards holy encounter and acknowledging that both our individual experience and accounts of the common experience of the church can be bent out of shape by prejudice, stereotype and idiosyncrasy. 
We need always to hold what we say and hear with a certain provisionality. Though this worries many people, there is no contradiction between this and faith. It is Jesus, the way, the truth and the life to whom we are called to be faithful. Not a particular interpretation of a set of words, as is often said. The opposite of faith is doubt, but certainty. From many directions, the Bible and from philosophy and the church's practical experience of prayer and understood down the ages and wrangled into shape by theologians, there is agreement. God who reaches out to us in love and mercy through the life of Jesus Christ and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who meets us in worship and sacrament and prayer and in moments of grace in the natural world and in human relationships, is at the same time far beyond our reach. The words we use to describe God are more like gestures to point our attention in the right direction than they are like a scientific description or dictionary definition. God in God's self is beyond, not just our language but our minds. We who stand under God don't have a kind of perspective that would allow us to understand God. In the Bible, this is the point made in the last chapters of the book of Job with their cut us down to size questions. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? And what is its basis sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. It is the point made in Isaiah 55, 8-9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We can see Paul's contrast, 1 Corinthians 1 between the wisdom of the world and the foolishness of God as a variation on the same theme. In philosophy, the famous definition of God's postulation by the ontological argument by Anselm, Descartes and others, it's that which nothing greater can be thought. This implies, of course, that we can't think God too precisely because if we could, there would always be a little bit more we could add to think of a greater one. It's an unusual definition one that ironically makes for a lack of clarity. In logic, the law of non-contradiction holds that a statement and its contradictory statement cannot both be true at the same object at the same time. This principle is absolutely crucial to honest speech. It doesn't apply, of course, to poetry and other types of metaphorical language which can have a deeper understanding of honesty and truth. But it applies only to finite things and beings. It breaks down once it gets to the territory of the infinite. Once you notice this, you can immediately see that you won't be able to hang on to sentiments about God with the same kind of assurance with which you hang on to statements about material objects or natural law. In the same way, if you think about individual words and how we know what they mean, you'll see that the work by dividing reality into indefinable bits. Definitions enable us to home in on the right bit of reality so that we can distinguish between a chair and a bed, for example, or between nutritious plants and poisonous ones. Words are a little bit like the machines that slice salami. They cut up reality into digestible chunks, but God isn't a bit of reality. God is the source of the whole thing. It's not surprising that words don't quite work properly when it comes to God. In theology, the almost unanimous conclusion of the theologians is summed up by Augustine's metaphorical phrase, 
if you can understand it, it isn't God. This doesn't mean that trying to understand God is a waste of time, of course. The whole biblical theme of wisdom in the books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, and more if you can, the books of the Apocrypha. And the repeated call for us to have eyes to see and ears to hear indicate otherwise. In particular, we are offered words that are accommodated to our capacity, words that derive from the incarnation of the word as Jesus of Nazareth. But we're not operating on a sort of binary scale, always stuck in not understanding because the only alternative is understanding, and that's simply not possible. The point is that there's a whole journey to take us towards understanding, a journey of increasing maturity. Paul talks about making the transition from baby milk to solids, and famously about the difference between seeing a distorted image in a sort of polished metal that serves like an ancient mirror, and seeing clearly face to face in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. We spend our lives, like the Israelites, wandering in the desert on this journey towards divine truth. Anselm famously called it faith-seeking understanding. We want to speak of God as he is. We know too often our words and ideas tend to become wobbly and unreliable when we point them to the divine. So far, so good. Pretty well everyone will agree with this. We haven't got to apophasis yet. In fact, all could be summed up by adding a footnote to every page of theology, even every page of the Bible. Be careful, taking this too literally will damage your spiritual health. The trouble with all such health warnings is that they can quickly get to the point where we pay them lip service only. We just carry on with our Bible readings and our hymns and prayers and sermons, Christian books and doctrinal statements. Looking up the appropriate points to repeat the refrain, of course, we must remember that this doesn't entirely capture God. The apophatic tradition begins from the point in which we pay serious attention to the possibility that there is something much more important.